Well, good morning. I had the privilege a few weeks ago to be in our nation's capital, and I was up there in D.C., and, and my wife Victoria, my old son Elijah joined me, and we spent a few days kind of touring the city and going to some of the different museums there at the Smithsonian and going to some of the monuments that are throughout the city. I mean, just a remarkable place. But my favorite thing we did by far was that we got to go to the newly opened Museum of the Bible, the best thing that $500 million could buy, I guess, or the best museum, at least, that half a billion dollars could buy. And so we got to go and spend a day there, and it's just an amazing place. And so if you get a chance to go to D.C. anytime soon, uh, this is a must-see museum. It is just incredible. And we had a wonderful experience there and could have spent the entire week in this one museum. But one of the exhibits at the Museum of the Bible was this one right here. It was called Washington Revelations. And, and what this Washington Revelations exhibit was is it was actually a virtual reality ride. I mean, that's what you would anticipate at a Bible museum, right? A virtual reality ride. And so you go into this room, you get on like a scooter type deal, and then the curtains open up and you begin flying through D.C., going to various places in the city where Scripture is written, whether it's monuments or buildings, and it just wants to show you how prevalent the Bible is in our nation's capital. I only got to see half of it because I actually suffer from motion sickness, so I had to look down. But from what they tell me, it was an incredible adventure. And so whether it was the U.S. Capitol or the Lincoln Memorial or the MLK Memorial or the Washington Monument, Whatever the case may be, I mean, the Bible is just all over our nation's capital. And when you stop for a second and think about that, that's actually pretty stinking remarkable. It's incredible. You know, many of us, really all of us, were born in a day and age where Christianity is huge. It's the largest religion in the world. That's the air that we breathe. And so because of that, I think we sometimes forget just how unlikely and how miraculous the story of our faith is. This global faith that has spread throughout the world that came from the most unlikely and the most humble of beginnings. I mean, the story of Christianity is the ultimate underdog story. And we are in the Gospel of Luke, and so we are, we are looking at the life of Christ and when you think about the life of Christ, one of the most fascinating things is how limited his life was. The scope of his life in ministry is incredibly limited. And listen, he's the most consequential person that's ever walked the earth. He is the hinge of history. So don't mistake me on that. His impact is felt more than anyone else. But his life on this earth was incredibly limited. He dies in his 30s. He's roughly my age when he dies. He ministers what we believe to be approximately three years. Three years. Less than a single term of a United States president. That was the length of Jesus' ministry. And not only was it limited in length, it was limited in, in its breadth. Because Jesus did not venture very far from home. He's born in Bethlehem. 
He grows up in Nazareth, and scholars tell us at the time Jesus was born, Nazareth was a town of a whopping four or five hundred people. That's it. A town that wouldn't show up on the map in the corner of the Roman Empire. And he spends his entire life in an area roughly the size of New Jersey. Israel is not big. It's about 250 miles north to south. It's about 70 miles at its widest point from east to west. You could fit 32 to 33 Israels in Texas. So Jesus is this middle-class, blue-collar worker from a small rural town in a corner of the Roman Empire who spends three years ministering in an area the size of New Jersey before he's hung on a cross between criminals and killed. That's the earthly life of our Savior. Let that sink in. And yet a movement birthed from his life, death, and resurrection that actually defies the Roman Empire, overtakes the Roman Empire, and then outlasts the Roman Empire when the Roman Empire collapses. And it actually holds that area of the world together for about a thousand years. And then we have a bunch of folks who are looking to establish a city on a hill that leave the continent of Europe, sail across the Atlantic Ocean, land on the shores of North America, and ultimately establish the United States. And that is why I can walk around Washington, D.C. with my wife and my son, separated from Jesus by 6,000 miles in 2,000 years, and his fingerprints are all over the place. They're everywhere. It is a miracle. And so if this is the type of impact that our Savior had, like if this is the type of legacy that he left, I think a natural follow-up question we should ask is, well, what did he do while he was here on this earth? Like what did his ministry actually even consist of? What did he focus on during his three years? And interestingly, what you will find is this. He started a global movement not from traveling the globe. He didn't hold revivals. He didn't hold crusades. He definitely taught the masses, but the bulk of Jesus' ministry was an intensive investment in a few. That's what it was. Jesus' ministry on earth was a ministry of discipleship. And so in Matthew 28, when he gives the Great Commission, he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. He is not telling them to do anything that he has not done himself. He is just saying, guys, I want you to do what I did with you. That's it. That's the call on your life. And as we read the Gospel of Luke, it is an elongated picture at the discipleship ministry of Jesus And so as we pick up our text this morning, in Luke chapter 6, he's discipling the disciples. In a famous portion of scripture called the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain. And during this sermon that we've been unpacking the last few weeks, what he's doing is he's telling his guys, look, this is how you live out the kingdom life. I know what the law says, but let me tell you what it means in the day-to-day life. 
Let me talk to you about what it means to be a kingdom citizen right here, right now. And in verse 37, the issue of judgment comes up. So he's going to talk about how judgment fits into this idea of being a kingdom citizen. This is what he says in verse 37. He says, do not judge and you will not be judged. And do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Pardon and you will be pardoned. Give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Now, we're about to enter a portion of Scripture that is really a classic place that people who don't like the Bible like to cite. It's one of their favorite places, okay? Because they, they say, well, don't judge me. Don't judge me. It says it right there. But the issue that Jesus is going to unpack for us right now is really not to refrain from making moral judgments. Because when you look at the New Testament as a whole, there are multiple exhortations by our Savior and by the apostles to help one another out, to judge one another, to reprove, to rebuke, to exhort, to discipline for the sake of the gospel. So the issue here is not, should I judge? The issue is how should I judge in light of the kindness, the grace, and the mercy that God has shown me? So it's not should I judge, it's how should I judge in light of the kindness I have received. Because remember where this section is following. Remember the previous verses that this is connected to? The two verses right before this, in verse 35 and 36, Jesus has said, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your return will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Be merciful. So he's talking about mercy, and now he's talking about how judgment connects to mercy. And how we are going to get what we give. We are going to reap what we sow. And I don't know about you, but I want God to show me grace. Like, I need it. I want you to show me grace. Because I need it. I mess up. And I want God to show me mercy. Because I need it. And I want you guys to show me mercy. Because I need it. Because I mess up. And so do you. And so if this is the case, it seems pretty clear to me that God expects me to give to others that which I have received from him. That God expects me to give to others that which I have received from him, which is grace and mercy and forgiveness. And Jesus is not, he's not a hippie. Okay, he's not advocating, advocating some establishment of a society where there's no laws, where you do what you want, where there's no penalties for breaking the law. That's not what he's saying. That's not what he's emphasizing. What he is emphasizing, though, is the necessity of mercy and forgiveness in the life of a kingdom citizen. And that if you do not forgive, God will take note of that. He will take Note of that. And you will get what you give. You will be measured. It says, for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. 
So we must never forget the kindness of God and the kindness he has shown us. Not so that we would never judge, but that so we would judge in light of that mercy, that grace, and that kindness that we have received. And this now brings us to the final section in verses 39 through 49, where Jesus closes the sermon by essentially giving his guys a number of warnings. And and what he's unpacking is this. He's saying, I have told you kingdom truth. You need to apply it in your life. And if you do not apply it in your life, this is what's going to happen. These are going to be the consequences for not doing that. And so starting in verse 39, he says, And he also spoke a parable to them. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. So in those days, a disciple was a learner. That's just what the word means. It means a learner. And so a disciple would identify a teacher that they wanted to follow. And then they would go to that teacher, and, I mean, they were just taking copious notes. Yes, sir. Okay. Yes, sir. You got it. All right. And they are learning from that teacher, and then they are applying what that teacher has taught them to their life because their goal is to imitate the teacher. It's to be like them. And so Jesus is saying, look, your job as my disciple is not to go be famous. It's not to go make a name for yourself. Your job as my disciple is to imitate me as the teacher. Imitate me in what I say. Imitate me in what I do. And so if you want to be great, listen to me. If you want to lead, learn how to follow me. If you want to walk by sight, keep your eyes on the one who gives sight to the blind. Follow me. Because to turn from Christ is to experience blindness. It's to experience blindness. And when blindness occurs, destruction happens, not only for us, but for those that we lead. As we fall into a pit. And he's speaking to the leaders here. He's speaking to the leaders who are going to be the ones leading. He says, if you go blind, they will die because of you. And he starts to unpack next what's oftentimes the first casualty of blindness. The first result of spiritual blindness, and that is the inability to see our own sin. The inability to see our own sin. Look at verse 41. It says, why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take out the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. And so once again, this is not an admonition from Jesus to never judge. I mean, look at the text. He literally says, you hypocrite, first take out the log out of your own eye, and then, and then, you will see clearly that take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. So the issue is not judgment. The issue is hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. And the reality is that spiritual blindness is often illustrated by 
a hypocrisy that combines harsh judgment of other people's sins while having complete obliviousness to your own. So boy, you can see other people's sins and you let them have it. But you are completely blind to that which entangles you. And so Jesus says, if you want to see clearly, remove the log. And he uses hyperbole here. Jesus loved to use hyperbole. The word right here for log was a beam upon which a building would be built. So he's saying, hey, if you want to move, remove that little speck of uh, wood, you know, carving or, or, or dirt in your neighbor's eye, take out the redwood from your face, okay? I mean, that's what he's saying here. He's calling them out. And then you may actually be able to help them because you can see clearly. And I know that when we read this or we hear this, it's a little bit intimidating, right? Because it seems like Jesus is saying, unless you are without sin, then you have no right to deal with another person's sin. And if that's the case, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking to myself, well, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. Because the Lord knows I have issues. So I'm just not going to say anything at all. But is that really what Jesus is saying? I mean, is Jesus really saying, hey, be perfect or else shut your mouth? I don't think so. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. I think Jesus is warning his guys against the spiritual blindness that will produce hypocrisy and harsh judgment. And this hypocrisy and harsh judgment are typically birthed from two common sins. Spiritual pride and self-righteousness. Spiritual pride and self-righteousness. And these are sins that Jesus is continually railing against in his ministry. I mean, I think if he walked the streets of San Antonio today, we might be surprised at what he actually gets angered about. We think he would go after the prostitutes maybe, but I think he may come directly for some of our churches who are filled with pride and self-righteousness. Jesus is not impressed with people who are impressed with themselves. He is not impressed with people who are impressed with themselves. Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And he knows this is a temptation. And he knows it's especially hard for the guys he's going to disciple. I mean, I want you to let that sink in. We're disciples of Christ. These guys, they're the disciples of Christ. You with me? You think there's potential for spiritual pride from these guys? For arrogance? For self-righteousness? For hypocrisy and harsh judgment of others who don't have their spiritual pedigree? I mean, just think about how prone to, we are to being ugly. And how proud we can get and obnoxious we can get when it comes to our favorite church or our favorite pastor or our favorite writer. Oh, you go where? Oh, Okay. I heard they do the gospel every once in a while, you know. Right? I mean, we can be ugly. Pride was a temptation for them, and it's a temptation for each one of us, without a doubt. 
I mean, we're all prone to bouts of self-righteous hypocrisy where our spiritual sight becomes impaired and and like self-righteousness just bubbles up. And because of that, the reality is that we constantly have to take like a spiritual machete to our life. When you are saved, I mean, the doors open up and there is a beautiful land that God has prepared for you, but your flesh remains and there are weeds and bushes and you are taking that machete and you are cutting them down day after day and they grow back and you cut them down and they grow back and you cut them down and you put to death the lust of the flesh and you walk by the spirit. And we need this. And not only do we need to put to death those things, we also need to surround ourselves with people who can see us clearly because they have taken the log out of their own eye. And this is a truth we see throughout the scriptures with some of the heavyweights. I mean, I think of King David. This guy's unbelievable. He's such a hero. And yet this hero sins before God with Bathsheba, against God, figures the best way to solve this is to have her husband killed. And what what amazes me when I read this story is not actually what David did. You know what really amazes me? He's still blind to it after the fact. You ever thought about that? Completely oblivious to maybe by chance I did something wrong. The one after God's own heart. And he's blind until Nathan comes and says, Hey, David, brother, you are wrong. You are that man. And the log falls out, and David can see. What about Peter? The Apostle Peter, the leader of the 12, right? The first megachurch preacher in Christian history. Preaching a gospel of unity between Jew and Gentile. We are one in Christ, except, except when his Jewish brethren start saying, hey, why are you hanging out with those Gentiles? Come on, come on, you know who you are. And he turns his back on his Gentile brethren. Why? He's blind. Blinded by pride. I'm a Jew. I mean, we're one in Christ, but I'm, come on. And Paul says, hey, hey, Peter, uh-uh. No way. That's wrong. And you are hurting the cause of Christ. Turn from that. The apostle John, my man, the apostle of love, the one who wants to be at the right hand of Jesus. Like, I'm going to be your guy, Jesus. I'm your number one. And they're going to Jerusalem, and Jesus sends him ahead, go to Samaria, find some lodging for us. He goes, he gets rebuked, he gets rejected. John comes back to Jesus and says, hey, they don't want us there. And I'll tell you what, Lord, you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Like, does that sound like a good idea, Jesus? Right? Like, let's kill them all. Just let the paramedics sort them out. And Jesus says, John, John, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's life, but to save them. John is so blinded by his pride and self-righteousness and hate against the Samaritans, those half-breeds, that the only thing he wants to reach him with is the fire of heaven. 
And Jesus says, uh-uh. John, that is your mission field. That's your mission field, not a fire pit. Come on. The log removed. It's appropriate that years later, as an old man, John wrote these words in 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. That's powerful. None of us are without sin. You know what that means? None of us are above correction. And none of us are immune to bouts of blindness. And so we need one another. None of us can do this on our own. And God's designed us to be with one another, excuse me, to, work, to do life with one another. And we see that in Hebrews 10. Where it says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The idea here is don't go about this alone. This is not a solo sport. When I used to coach football, we'd have a saying we did with the football team. And we'd tell the guys, guys, the strength of the wolf is the pack. And the strength of the pack is the wolf. You're in this together. And you're stronger together. So stick together. And that's what we're told in the scriptures. And that's why here at Wayside, our vision statement is what? That Wayside is a community rooted in the word, reaching out to the world, reproducing Christ's followers. But it starts in the family. It starts by being in community with one another because we are in this together and because we need one another. And I know in a church the size of Wayside, it can be difficult to connect It can be difficult to figure out how do I engage with other people's lives in a meaningful way. And so that's why we do our best to give you opportunities, whether it's through Sunday morning ABFs or life groups during the week or Bible studies or discipleship opportunities or service outreaches or mission trips because we want you to start rubbing life with one another because we need one another. We actually have a great opportunity for the men coming up next month when we have the annual men's retreat in February. It's going to be a great opportunity for you guys to meet other guys from our body and come together as men and encourage one another as brothers in Christ to walk in victory. So I encourage you to sign up for that. Women, I encourage you to tell your men, sign up for that. I got you covered at home because you'll be blessed by it. And so blindness results when we turn from the one who gives sight. And when we walk in blindness... We become blind to our sin, and we also become blind to our lack of fruit. Our lack of fruit. And so Jesus says, you need to step back and do some reflection before you start throwing around a bunch of rejection. You need to do an inventory on your own life. Verses 43 through 45. He says, for there's no good tree which produces bad fruit. Nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. 
The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. So Jesus says, before you judge, take a step back and do some honest inventory. And the fruit will reveal the root. And good fruit comes from a good tree. Bad fruit comes from a bad tree. When we walk with Jesus, we produce good fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. When you walk in blindness, you, what we call, we, you produce what we call bad fruit or the lust of the flesh. So we are to walk with our eyes on Jesus. Now, when everyone speaks about the need for a believer, now hear me, the need for a believer to produce fruit, people get really freaked out. Because either they say, hey, you're mixing works with grace, or they do an inventory right there in the pews. Like some of y'all are not even listening to me right now because you're like, oh my gosh, I've got like four rotten spiritual bananas (laughs) and my apples are expired. I'm probably not saved. But you need to remember your salvation was never based on you. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone, period. We are saved by works, but it's the work of Jesus Christ and his righteousness applied to us by faith. And that is the the, the heart of salvation from beginning to end. But that does not mean that God does not care about how you live. I mean, it makes me think of my three sons, right? I have three boys, and no matter what, Those are my guys. They will always be my sons, no matter what they do. They were born into this family, and nothing will change that. But I care deeply as their father about how they live. Not because they need to earn me as their dad, but because they're already my sons. They're already there. They don't need to earn my love. They have my love. They need to walk in it. They need to respond to that the right way. And we see this idea throughout Scripture, this idea that we have received grace and then we are to walk in grace in a way that honors God. Maybe the best place is in Ephesians 2, kind of a classic text, where it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Praise God! By grace, through faith, in Jesus, his gift, apart from anything I can do. So I guess I'm done, right? I mean, I guess I checked that box. Except verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. At the beginning of the Reformation, the Reformers had a great phrase. They said, faith alone justifies, but faith that justifies will not be alone. Faith alone justifies, but faith that justifies will not be alone. But this does create a tension. A tension where we recognize at all times our complete dependence upon the grace of God. And that nothing ever changes that. That I contribute nothing. 
And at the very same time, we recognize the fact that this God who has saved me has called me to walk in holiness and obedience to him. It's a both and. And this is a tension that's there by divine design. Because God doesn't want us to forget either one of those things. It's a tension, and I think it's a tension that the Apostle Paul really got. I mean, I think he was clued in on this. Because if you read the Apostle Paul's writings, it's really pretty remarkable. He writes the book of 1 Corinthians, we think, in the mid-50s. And you know how he describes himself in 1 Corinthians? He says, I'm the least of the apostles. The least of the apostles. And you're like, that's pretty humble. Right? That's pretty good. It's like me standing up here and go, guys, I'm just, I'm just the least of the pastors here at Wayside. I'm just doing my part. That's Paul. Five years later, though, he writes Ephesians. How does he describe himself in Ephesians? He says, I'm the least of the saints. Okay. You're the least of the apostles. Now you're the least of the saints. I'm tracking. I'm tracking. Except a few years later, he writes 1 Timothy to his beloved Timothy. You know how he describes himself in 1 Timothy? I'm the foremost of sinners. I'm the chief of all sinners. Least of the apostles. Least of the saints. Chief of all sinners. And you know what else he writes at the same time? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Both of those come from the same guy's pen. And we look at that and we go, okay, which one is it, Paul? Are you a sinner or are you a saint? Should we imitate you or are you like the worst dude ever? And I think the reality is that Paul's on to something. And I, I liken it to flying towards the sun, which may be a terrible illustration, but follow me. As we get really close to that little star called the sun, the, the rays of light get brighter and the heat gets more intense. And when you grow in intimacy with Christ... It should not puff you up with pride. It should reduce you in utter humility. Because the closer you get, the greater awareness you have of his holiness. And thus, the greater awareness you have of your sin. And thus, the greater awareness you have of grace, of his grace. And Paul is someone who gets this. He gets the tension and embraces both and can say, yes, I am the chief of all sinners. Man, he's holy. And at the same time say, and I'll tell you what, follow me. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. We are saved by grace. And by grace, we are to live as those who are saved. It's the bottom line. And this brings us to Jesus' final warning in the close of the Sermon on the Plain, in verses 46 through 49. He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me hears my words and acts on them, and I will show you what, who, whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and not acted accordingly... It's like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. 
And the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of the house was great. Friends, don't gloss over verse 46. Do you see what it says? Jesus is demanding. Let's make no pretense about this. Jesus wants you to be all in. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? I mean, he takes discipleship and obedience seriously. And he did not come to earth to die for sin, to be second fiddle in your life. He expects total commitment. He's not selling a a variety of packages. Like you can choose option A, total commitment, pretty intense, but I know that may not be for everybody. So we have option B, semi-solid commitment except for areas of finances, your marriage, your workplace. It's a pretty good option. And then we do have the bronze package. Just sign here. Low commitment, get your insurance, you're good to go. That's not how Jesus operates, is it? I mean, the rich young ruler comes, says, hey, I want, how do I, what about salvation? Follow the law. Oh, yeah, done, done, done that, done that. Good. Sell everything you have, follow me. Another guy says, yeah, hey, Jesus, I want to follow you. Jesus says, great. But the guy says, um, got to go bury my father. Jesus says, hey, why don't you let the dead bury the dead? You follow me. Comes to Peter, fishing, right? Peter, follow me. I will make you a fisher of men. And the text says, immediately, they left their nets. They left their vocation. They left their livelihood. I'm going to follow you. The call to discipleship has always been one of total commitment from our Lord. It's intense, the cost is great, but the rewards are eternal, and the results of not following him are catastrophic. And that's his point in the last few verses. He illustrates it by speaking of a storm that resulted in a flood that these guys would, that that, that they could foresee in the shores of Galilee. Like they could picture it in their mind. And the result of the flood was that while some homes, were, some homes were destroyed, torn apart by the waves, others stood and remained unscathed. Why? It reminds me of a, a story I came across recently in closing um, about a couple from California named Jan and John Pasco. And so they're up in Santa Barbara when the fires are raging in October of 2017. And they go out before they go to bed and they look out in the sky and they see the fires way off. But that's actually not something completely new or alarming. They don't have any alerts on their phone. So, like, hey, we're going to go to bed. So they go to bed and a little bit later their daughter calls and says, hey, I'm watching the news. I think you need to get out of there. And so the couple says, okay, well, let's do it. And so they start moving pretty quickly and gathering a few things. They get in their car. They live up on a mountain. There's only one exit. And so they get in their car. They head towards that exit. And while they're going there, the storm, the fire just completely blows towards them, surrounding them with fire and blocking the exit, the one exit. They're trapped. And the fire's about to just take out everything. And so they turn around. They head back to their house really in panic mode, when the husband realizes our neighbors have a pool. And they park the car, they get out, they go into their neighbor's backyard, and the fire is coming all around them. And they hop into this cold pool in October. Cold water. 
And they hug one another, and they stay close to one another, and they say, I love you, I love you. And they talk about how they're going to, they can do this, we can survive this, and talk about their love for their family. They both take a shirt, and they put it over, they start putting it over their face when they come up for water because of the embers flying around and the debris. And they go back down, and they're together. And they come up, and they go back down. And they do this again and again and again for over six hours. Six hours in their neighbor's pool. Until the storm ultimately passes them by. And they survived. They survived because they jumped in the only thing that could save them. The pool of living water in this case. And they survived. And that pool had been next to them the whole time. The whole time. The one thing that we have going for us in this life is Jesus. And that's a big deal. I love the C.S. Lewis quote. It says, Christianity, if false, if false is of no importance, if true is of extreme, infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Cannot be moderately important. So don't spend your life chasing things that do not matter so that you can build things that do not last. But follow the one who gives sight to the blind. Go to the one who has the living water that can sustain and bring life. And build your life brick by brick by brick by brick on the one foundation that can survive the temporary storms that this life brings. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you and we confess our failures, we confess our shortcomings. We confess our pride, our ignorance. We confess that we are not always what you have called us to be. And at the same time, God, we proclaim your grace. That when we are faithless, you are faithful. And that when you died on the cross and secured salvation for your people, it was not dependent upon what we could do for you, but wholly dependent upon what you chose to do for us. God, I pray if there's anyone in here who has never taken that step of faith, if they've just looked at that pool of living water, so to speak, and they've said, well, I think I can get out on my own. I mean, I think I've got a pathway. Maybe I can get this. Maybe I can just jump on a helicopter. Maybe I can run out through this pathway. I think I can do it. Lord, would they come to the pool of living water that has been by them the whole time? Would they see you for who you really are? And would they jump in, not just, not just skimming their toe, not just sticking their hand in the water, but God, would they dive in full on, knowing that you are the only source of life? And God, for those of us here who have taken that step of faith, God, would you move us from belief to discipleship? Would you move us from a blind leader to one that says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow me. 
Lord, would you put a passion in our hearts to make disciples? Not to babysit. Not to babysit baby Christians. Not to build walls to keep sinners out. But to make disciples who see the greatness of who you are. God, would you make that the heartbeat of our church? Would we be pleasing to you? And would you be honored? And would you be glorified? And would you be praised by the offering of our life? Lord, we thank you for the chance to worship. We commit this time to you. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.